when we make an investment in a company at Dorm Room Fund and I'm point partner on that company, meaning I'm the one that's gonna help the company um, through until they can raise their next round, I very much look at that as I work for this company now. Welcome everyone to the Debate Without Debate podcast. It's a new week, which means there's a new episode today. Everyone, I want you all to welcome Justine Humanensky of Dorm Room Fund and a variety of other things. We're really happy to have you here today and we're excited for this conversation. Yeah, happy to be here. So Justine, before we get into anything, would you be able to give us just a quick introduction for those who don't know you, maybe don't know the Dorm Room Fund? Um, so what you're all about and, and what you kind of do there. Yeah, sure. Um, so quick introduction to myself. Um, I started out as a professional ballerina. So I did high school in three years, danced professionally for six, um, and then went to undergrad. And ever since then have been investing in the tech sector. So I covered public markets um, at Barclays um, prior to business school. And then the past two years, I switched over to private markets and early stage venture. Um, And I'm managing partner for the San Francisco team of Dorm Room Fund, which is a student-run VC fund that invests in student founders, and we're backed by first-round capital. Very cool. Amazing. So it seems like you work a lot with young adults, aspiring entrepreneurs, people who really want to make a lasting impact, but they aren't, uh, quote-unquote, in that grand stage of adulthood. So in your opinion, um, what makes youth entrepreneurship so special? Yeah, I mean, I think that student entrepreneurs or young entrepreneurs are just are much more familiar with the problem of their generation, which is always kind of the up and coming generation, um, which is really important because soon that generation comes to like comprise the biggest um, spenders in the economy. But if you look um, at history, a, a lot of very successful and well-known startups were started in dorm room funds. So anywhere from Facebook to um, Ethereum were started by young founders in a university setting. Awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, When I first heard of dorm room fund, I was really drawn to that aspect. Uh, My roommate and I um, in our own ro- our own room would joke that, you know, this this room is going to be infamous uh, after we leave here because we're going to create something super special. Uh, so I love the mission of the dorm room fund. But before we, we really dive into that, I, I want to touch on something that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, switching over from being a ballerina, doing that full time and then making the switch to, you know, going to undergrad and eventually where you are right now. I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little to that, because I'd imagine that's a little bit of a different trajectory than people would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's definitely, um, I think I'm on my third career now. And so I think each each one of those transitions kind of involves starting from from scratch. But I think the commonality for me is obviously dancing is a very creative pursuit. and, And I also think that investing in particularly early stage venture is also creative in that it's about hearing people's ideas and their vision for the future. And so that's kind of the commonality um, that I see between the two. Absolutely. That's, that's a super interesting point. Cause I, I don't think I specifically would have thought of investing as a creative pursuit. I think there's a, an inclination to think a lot of things are just by the numbers. Um, and that's actually a perfect segue into, to one of the questions that I really have for you. So I've seen that, that you write a little bit on the dorm room funds blog and you've broken down, you know, why you invested in certain companies, but I'm wondering if you could share with us today as a managing partner, 
Um, what do you really think makes a pre-seed startup stand out amongst the crowd? Many people have ideas, but what makes that unique edge? Yeah, for sure. I think I think one of the most important things that we look for is kind of what does this team or founder understand about this problem or market that nobody else does. And so there's different terms um, that different funds use to refer to that. So sometimes people call it a unique insight. Other other um, times investors will call it an earned secret, but they really have to understand something that's not obvious to everybody else. Um, and it needs to be a real pain point that resonates with users. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing that we look for, especially with student founders that might have um, or have traditionally had less access to capital is how has this team or founder been really creative with constrained resources? Um, So that's kind of a combination of like hustle and being really scrappy. But again, it's kind of like, I look in particular for that creative element. Um, And then I think it's also, we look for things like, do they run small tests to kind of invalidate or validate their uh, assumptions? And are they open to proving their own hypotheses wrong? And then how do they adapt and navigate around that? Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously we look at things like dynamics uh, between the team and how the team works together and um you know, things like if their their competencies are, are complementary or, or kind of redundant. Um, and then I, I would say finally, kind of like their ability to um, convey and get other people excited about their vision. And that's important for their ability to recruit talent to their team, for their ability to fundraise and for their ability to sell their product or service. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the venture capital kind of market is fairly rewarding. Like you mentioned before, um, a lot of great companies have been able to start and truly flourish just with the impact of, you know, venture capital. But for me, I don't really know much about venture capital in all honesty. Um, So I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that there's something, what do you think venture capital could improve upon? Is there something which is missing currently? Because it seems like it's giving people a lot of opportunity. Yeah, sure. Um, I I think you're right in that a lot of times venture capital can be the difference between a startup existing and not existing. Um, So I think it can have a a strong impact. I think there are lots of um, kind of holes or gaps that the industry is getting better at addressing, but still needs to do more work. And so some of those things are like um, the inclusivity of the industry. And so kind of what is the breakdown of what types of founders get funding and which types um, have less access to that funding. Um, and, and then kind of a, the other side to that is that it's very network based. Um, there's a lot of information asymmetries in the market. And so it te- people tend to kind of talk among their personal networks and recruit from their personal networks. And so that creates, again, dynamics that um, can be not very inclusive. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Having been in the room where it happens, what do you think is one aspect that entrepreneurs have an assumption about venture capitalists that might actually not be true? Um, so like what, in, in other words, what is that kind of unknown factor that you think might create a problem between those two parties? Um. 
So I think the best the best way for me to answer this is to talk to you, just to basically say what I think a good venture capitalist is. And sure. I think that that's a venture capitalist that like when we make an investment in a company at Dorm Room Fund and I'm point partner on that company, meaning I'm the one that's going to help the company um, through until they can raise their next round. I very much look at that as I work for this company now. And I'm here to do whatever they need me to do. But they're obviously running the show, but I am kind of on call for them to help in any way that I can. And so I think you want to look for investors generally whose incentives are aligned with your own as a founder and who genuinely want your company to succeed and that will kind of evangelize your company to anybody and everybody that they talk to. Mm -hmm. So it seems like we're in some pretty trivial times right now. Quite obviously, our global economy isn't doing too well. People are staying at home. Um, It's questionable if entrepreneurship is still holding to the same value at which it was before the whole coronavirus pandemic. Um, So from your perspective, how do you think the coronavirus is going to impact venture capital? Yeah, so I guess first I can talk how I think it might affect entrepreneurship. And then I can talk about kind of the funding aspect of that. So I think, obviously, if we're in a recessionary environment, um, people's risk tolerance to start companies might be lower um, and consumer demand also might be lower for some things. But that being said, I think that a massive global challenge like this creates, there are a lot of things that we need to build solutions for. And so I actually think there's tons of opportunity for people to start companies for things that people really need. Um, And they might have less, let's call it more traditional opportunities like banking or consulting or, or, or big tech or wherever they might work if they didn't start their own company. So I think there's probably the short answer is I think there's more opportunities to build Um, really impactful companies, but also probably maybe a little bit lower risk tolerance than normal. I think in terms of funding, um, the global macro situation definitely impacts access to capital. And so I think what we're telling founders is to try to um, have a really tactical plan for how they're going to make it through the next 18 months without being reliant on raising a lot of additional capital during that time. Um, deals will still continue to get done. VCs, um, if you know, if they have closed a fund recently, have capital that they need to deploy. Just think that the bar in terms of metrics and margins will be a lot higher than it previously has and valuations will also be lower. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point. I know I've done much more... Uh, listening to a lot more podcasts that are definitely in this space. Um, and one aspect that I feel like many people don't talk a lot about, and it's something that, that Joey and I like to focus here on our podcast, is how polarization impacts various different spaces. So I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, and, and the impact of maybe polari- polarizing ideas, polarizing startups even, that might only focus on a small segment of the population, whether or not that's a good strategy uh, especially in terms of speaking to venture capitalists when you're pitching your ideas? I see. Um, so I think what is a valid strategy that many companies have done is you can start by targeting kind of a niche or core group of, of users that your product will 
um, appeal to initially. I think in order to generally, obviously not always, but in order to reach venture scale, which um, you can very basically define as like a company that's going to be worth a billion dollars one day. Um, you're going to need to appeal either to a small group of very ultra high net worth individuals or or a broad base of mainstream um, consumers. And so I think it's a I think it's totally valid to ta target a niche so long as you can use that as a wedge to then expand into a larger group, unless that niche group. Um, is going to be a very like high average contract value. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's kind of like this preconceived notion about venture capital as being like a sleazy and kind of like not very inclusive environment. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to people who believe in that idea? What would you say to convince them? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think I understand where that kind of perception comes from, but I think in, in venture, what's really true is it's very partner specific. And so every partner um, at every different fund is kind of very much their personal brand and how they're going to help a founder or not help a founder and kind of like what terms um, they want to put in place. And so I think that definitely as a founder doing your research in terms of what funds are kind of more founder friendly or aligned with your own personal values um, and which specific partners you think you would feel comfortable with <laughs> entering into a 10 plus year re like relationship basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's those two things. I think you can also do some diligence on what their, what past investments they've made. And the best thing is if you can talk to founders that have worked with them in the past, that will help you get some like candid feedback on what, what the experience of a certain investor um, has or hasn't been, but you can tell a lot by their current portfolio, right? You can see what types of founders they do or don't invest in. Mm -hmm. So what, what makes a good partner in a venture capital um, format? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's different depending on the circumstance, but it, a bit what I said earlier, like someone who's really going to go to bat for your company and who's going to um, feel like they're also working towards your mission, who's going to evangelize your product and team and kind of, you know, send it out to all their friends to, to try and to kind of, You'll, your company will always be top of mind with that person whenever they're talking to other VCs or other founders. Um, and then sometimes it's relevant if that partner has um, a lot of experience or expertise in whatever vertical you're working in, uh, that kind of domain expertise can be important uh, sometimes, but it's not always required. Absolutely. I guess a, a follow-up to that would be, can you speak to a time that you were in one, one of these settings, uh, and a startup was, was pitching to you. you, they might have had an incredible idea, they might have not, that really stands out. Because one aspect that I know Joey and I focus a lot on, and, and a lot of our listeners speak to, is there's, a, there's an, almost an art to the way that you can communicate. Sure. So what in your mind can, can someone do to distinguish their pitch, especially if you could speak to an experience that you've had with founders? Sure, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately pitching a company is uh, storytelling, right? And so you, you want to get the investors excited about the story. You want to make sure that it makes sense at every at every step of the way. And you want to um, prov 
you want to give them a high level overview of what their vision is with enough detail that they feel confident that you can execute on it. Um, and so I think the most effective pictures kind of, yeah, draw you in and get you really involved in the, in the story and make you really understand the pain point and how their solution is going uh, to solve that. Um, and then I think like every pitch is followed by a Q and A. And so founders that really know the problem cold and all of their numbers without hesitation, just again, impart the confidence that this founder knows everything about this problem and market and is going to be able to execute because having the idea is, is very, the idea and the team are very important, but the ability to execute is like what actually separates the uh, winners from the not winners. Yeah, how can you how can you tell what that execution looks yeah. like? Because I know I've I've spoken with so many people who have fantastic ideas. I I remember a saying I think it was from Sarah Blakely that that basically said something along the lines of everyone has a billion dollar idea sitting in the back of their head. Sure. It just takes the unique person to execute on that. So where can you really find that that work ethic before you're even working with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you can usually see indications in someone's background um, that indicate that their level of execution would be high. And so that I like to look at, like, has that person mastered something before? So were they a top level athlete or a musician? Did they play the violin? Were they the, uh, we have a partner that was the national spelling bee champion, which I love that. I think that's so cool. So um, basically just indications that that person understands how to get from A to B and how to become the best in the world. That something can be um, indicate you can have those indications before you might have a lot of work experience, for example. Um, and then I, again, I think being able to look at how they've approached problem solving so far in terms of the company and in terms of even just the initial validating of the idea, how did they run tests? How did they think about things if they pivoted? what were the factors that made them do so? I think all of those are pretty strong indicators um, of how of how the company will execute on things. Because at the end of the day, the, the investors provide capital and support, but really they're making a bet that the founder will be able to make the right decisions because mm. they're running the business. It's not the investors that are actually making these calls. Yeah, it seems like there's a huge push um, I think there's always been this push, but for kids to always go to school, go to college, get your graduate degree, et cetera, go into a nice profession, go to the best school that you can possible. Um, but it seems like the dynamic's shifting a little bit, especially recently with the advent of technology. People are veering away from that traditional path. Um, so to add on to that, do you think that traditional education is a sheer indicator of like a company's success from a founder's background, like from a founder's standpoint? Um, no, I mean, I think you you can see prominent examples of people that didn't go to a quote Ivy League school or people that dropped out or people that had totally non-traditional backgrounds. I think um, talking to some of the the gaps and holes we have, I think that some of the networks of um, some prestigious universities or whatever are very strong and self-enforcing. And so Um, I think that it's probably easier to get your foot in the door to get a meeting or something if you if you went to certain schools, but I don't do not think it's a requirement at all. Yeah, Uh, just piggybacking on on one of Joey's questions as a follow up. Do you think education is cultivating the right type of of mindset 
amongst individuals for, for these types of relationships, given that it's such a creative process? Yeah, I think I think it's um, that varies a lot depend um, by school. I think yeah. there are some schools that are very focused on entrepreneurship and a high percentage of the class pursues working at a startup or starting their own company. And then there are schools where it's lower. Um, and I think it's changing over time. For sure. Definitely. I think the, the percentage of graduating classes that go into more traditional fields like banking or consulting, I think, is lower than it was 10 years ago. Um, and I think that's because people are pursuing more entrepreneurship or, or working with uh, earlier stage startups uh, more often than they used to. Yeah, I know I definitely sit in that boat. Uh, I've had many conversations with my family alone when I tell them that I'm interested in entrepreneurship. And, you know, they're, they're always concerned. How are you going to make money? Why not go into consulting first or, or anything else? So I guess as, a, as an ending note, do you have any words of wisdom for that person sitting out there right now who has that idea, who's afraid to take the first step? Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of the part of the philosophy of dorm room fund is that we actually think starting a company while you're in school can be a real advantage. And that's because you're kind of able to take um, risks while you're still in school and you're still pursuing a degree. Um, and you'll have various options when you graduate for, and you can continue with entrepreneurship or you can go um, a different route. But you also have access to all of your peers who are all very bright um, and willing to be beta users and take surveys and do all of these kind of things that you need to do initially. And you also have access to professors um, and academics and industry alum, and you, you'll get a much higher response rate with the .edu email address than you will just like some mm. Gmail because people want gener generally want to help students. Um, whereas if you just don't have the .edu email address, they think you probably want something from them. Um, so w we at Dorm Room Fund actually think um, that it can be a big advantage to start a company um, in universities. And traditionally, it's been a bit harder to raise capital when you are a full-time student, but that's why organizations like Dorm Room Fund and now many other funds also um, will found, will fund provide students with funding while they're still in school. Absolutely. And I, I think your note is, is totally on point. Uh, I know being in the clubs that I'm on at, at Georgetown where I go to school, there's a ton of networks that I could just tap into, which is just so beautiful. Um, but I just want to thank you again for your time, Justine. And I want to roll the red carpet out for you. If people want to contact you in any way, they have questions or they want to apply for the dorm room fund, uh, where can they reach out? Yes, um, absolutely. You can email me at Justine, um, J-U-S-T-I-N-E, at Dorm Room Fund. And we, uh, you can also apply online at our website, dormroomfund.com. And we take um, applications from founders at all schools uh, within the U.S. and all year round. Fantastic. Justine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That's all from us from the DWD podcast for this week. We will see you when we see you. Peace. Peace. Mm -hmm.